Welcome to the Disruptor Series Podcast, Adweek's Agency Podcast of the Year. Every episode, we listen to and learn from people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here are your hosts, Asha Davis and Rob Schwartz. Well, thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is Bill Sapalis. Bill is the founder of the Neighborhood Curbside Canvas Project, a volunteer recovery effort to drive interest, energy, foot traffic and business back to New York neighborhoods and give artists a public forum. Bill, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Rob. Good to see you again. Excellent. So, you know, I was thinking about our chat today and I was walking down 17th Street with my dog a couple of months ago. And, you know, in New York, we've got these little uh, kind of extended bits of restaurant that have popped up. I don't even know what the official name of them is, but I had seen one on 17th Street and I thought, wow, there's a beautiful piece of art. There's like amazing mural on there. And I'm like, wow, these restaurants, they're just so, so creative and clever. You know, how could that even happen? And then fast forward, you and I are having a cup of coffee over at the Great Dog by Union Square. And they have one of these cool murals. And you're like, oh, you like that? And I'm like, yeah, I think that's amazing. Isn't it amazing? And you're like, yeah, I made that happen. So how did you make these things happen? Well, it's a pretty amazing experience that I've had since September. Disruption is a real big part of it. You know, one of the things this is all about is taking matters in your own hands in periods when no one's watching. So the pandemic hits, everybody leaves, right? People come back, no one knows what to expect. Restaurants start shuttering, heartbreaking, Midtown shutters, uh, but everybody's individual neighborhood in the city is seeing the effects of it. Stores close up, uh, restaurants, you know, which to me are make up the heart of any neighborhood. Yeah. They start closing down. We don't know if they're going to open back up. We don't know if they're going to survive this. You know, they're all mom and pop for the most part. So I'm riding my bike in August down from my PT appointment in Union Square. And I'm riding my bike a lot during the summer. It's one of the things the pandemic did give us, right? It gave us a chance to like, like uh, fix ourselves in, in any way possible. So I dusted out my bike and I was riding a lot, doing a lot of riding. So I'm riding my bike from Union Square down to Tribeca and I'm going through Soho and this is right after the Black Lives Matter movement happened, and I'm seeing all the plywoods that have been painted by street artists. And this is the first of taking matters in your own hands, right? Like there, it's there, so you're just going to express on it. Not planned, not organized by the, you know, by the store owners who put the plywood up, but something happened. Then I continued riding my bike into my own neighborhood and saw that restaurants were starting to put up these little patios, sheds, shanties, whatever you want to call them. And I realized like the city doesn't let that happen. The city does not want anything that they can't make money off of or control. (laughs) And the restaurants are taking matters in their own hands. They know that they have to survive somehow. And I got really excited by that. And I'm thinking, I come from a a restaurant and visual arts family. And so the two of those things coming through Soho and then coming into my own neighborhood and seeing that it's just plywood again, like these restaurants were just 
quickly putting something up to give himself some sort of dining area to sit in. And I said, wait a minute, there's, there's something there. Like if artists are going to start painting the wooded up windows, why wouldn't they take an opportunity to express themselves on these, the name curbside canvases? And so, you know, I had no idea whether this was going to be viable, whether any restaurants would be interested in participating, whether any artists would volunteer of their own hearts. But, you know, I had bandwidth. I had a lot of time on my hands. I'm like, okay, let me just have no expectations and just see what happens. Let me just reach out to some people. All right. So, so before, so before you do that, let's maybe let's, let's just describe for people because you know this is a podcast, so it's not visual. <laughs> so again, I think you know maybe just to bring it to life a little bit. And, and Ash, you tell me what you're seeing. Yeah. You know, uh, from your standpoint, I mean, but I'm literally seeing you know from plywood, just you know, boring plywood to suddenly like an incredible mural that you you know could see in a museum. I mean, Ash, I don't know what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's interesting because I feel like. You know, Bill, you you said you classified some of the artwork that showed up after the Black Lives Matter movement as art, where other people may see it as vandalism and graffiti, you know what I mean? And I'm like, to me, a lot of that was art as well. And I feel like, at least from my perspective, it was almost like this mashup of art, street, graffiti that just like and really vibrant and colors which i think was kind of something that definitely catches your eye when when juxtaposed with that bland uh plywood you know yeah and that's an interesting point because there's a fine line yes yeah. restaurants are not going to want graffiti on their on their pop-ups if you even have one piece of graffiti it invites more tagging right right So it was a fine line. Like, how do we make sure that it's not graffiti, but it is street art? Right. That it is something that the restaurants would be receptive to. Otherwise, nobody benefits, right? Like, if if a graffiti artist were to go tag a board, a restaurant's just going to paint over it. It's like, it doesn't do anything for anyone. And by the way, I, I think that, you know, what I was seeing was not defacing these neighborhoods. If anything, the art was either an expression of hope uh, or just, you know, the energy of the city. I mean, that's what was super powerful. And and I hadn't realized until you were talking about it up front, you know, you took me right back to July, hot as blazes, you know, and just so depressing. But when you saw the art, you went, wait a minute, we're going to get through this, aren't we? It really, art in the world, and especially during that period, was like a flower growing in a crack in a sidewalk. Yeah. It was, wait a minute, you know, with all the the horrible death, babies are still being born during this period. Life is Mm -hmm. still coming out. People still need to express. People still need to get outside and somehow realize that their neighborhoods and our great city is not done. Yeah. And speaking of that energy of of last summer, you mentioned the spark that happened for you in in August. And I was reading an article that you had done or that you had been interviewed in last September. And you were talking about kind of A, going up to the restaurants and basically being like, 
Okay, I'm not trying to sell you anything, but uh, <laughs> hear me out, hear me out. <laughs> you know? um, and I'm just curious in terms of, you know, a little bit more about what that experience was like and also kind of the response. Because the other thing that also was interesting in that is, when you think about last August, last September, you had this sense of urgency, like this is going to end. And obviously, fast forward to where we are now, yeah. I mean, these things aren't going anywhere. So. That's a great point. Back then, because the restaurants just took it into their own hands to like put up these pop-ups, the city issued a decree that uh, as of November 1st, they all had to come down. So this is what? This is Labor Day. So I, I, at that point, realized I have two months to have a positive effect on these restaurants, on the neighborhood, to try to give these restaurants a little bit more life, a little bit more business, a little bit more, uh, drive a little bit more traffic, get them a little attention. If they can get one or two more customers on a Wednesday night, they couldn't open the doors Thursday morning. Mm. So... I had to move really, really quick. What I did was I, I've lived in this neighborhood more than 20 years and I've you know, raised my kids here. So I, I know a lot of people. And I, I reached out to them. I said, this is a good idea. Can you help tell other people about it? Give me a sense of how we can make this work because it's got to be a neighbor helping neighbor effort. Mm-hmm. Early on, I tried to reach out to the city. I got crickets. I, you know, Citibank and a couple of other corporations are down here. And I know people in those, but it just took too long. They were never going to be able to implement it in two months. So again, I said, I just have to take this in my own hands. I printed up a flyer that showed a before and the after of what a a raw pop-up could look like. And then I photoshopped (laughs) something over it and I made a flyer. uh, And on my bike, I literally went from restaurant to restaurant. And I, the first thing I said, to your point is, I'm a neighbor, I'm not selling anything. And I know coming from a restaurant family, everyone who walks through your door who you don't know, who is not a customer, is trying to sell you something. So you want to get them out. I'm I'm just a neighbor. I hate what's happening and I want to help. I'm going to do whatever I can to help. And I showed them this picture before and after and literally they go, I get it. Yes, yes, yes. The before yeah. and after ad format still yeah. works. Not like, just for dieting, you know, oh. only. <laughs> I was wow. like, you, you're like, you created a flyer, and I'm like, otherwise known as an advertisement. Uh, <laughs> and it was print. Wait a minute. It, 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 it wasn't digital? What's going on digital. here? You were a true disruptor, I, Bill. You got to know your audience, right? Like, <laughs> restaurant owners aren't sitting behind some computer, right? They're right. out and... Look, one of the lessons in all this, or not one of the lessons, but one of the things is I put everything I've learned from marketing, from advertising, from writing, design, strategy, I, everything came to use. Yeah. Everything came to use. And the one thing that was new is that I had no intention of where this could go. I had no, or no expectation. I had a clear intention, but no expectation. And I just said to myself, I'm not trying to get money out of this. I'm not trying to get paid. I'm I don't have I'm not charging any fee. I'm doing this because I care. This is a pandemic. I'm not an essential worker. What am I going to look back on in in 10 years and and say what did I do to help anybody or anything during this yeah, period? Yeah. And I felt like okay, if I can help one restaurant get a few more customers then then I've done something. I'm moving 
the ball. If I had, you know, if I was <laughs> in my in my general, you know, marketing ad guy presentation, you know, it'd be in my head, like, how am I going to turn, you know, some sort of benefit or profit to me or who I'm representing? It's just like, I think that sort of complete selflessness, complete, I'm just here to help because right now we just need people to help each other. And I would say, look, during this period, cash is poor to everybody, right? Artists, you know, you guys, the restaurants, you have no money, but you have food and hospitality. The artists have no money, but they have their passion and they have their charity they want to give as well. Me, I had no money, but I had plenty of bandwidth and I've got all these skills I've learned from 20 plus years in our business that you don't realize how valuable they are and how easy they come to you after you've done them for so to just say, oh, I can put this, 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 and this together and make, make a machine work. And that's kind of what I could, that's the currency I could give to this period. So, yeah. so, all right. So, so you, knowing all that, I mean, is that like, how do you get these artists? So you, yeah. we know that, uh, you know, I'm using air quotes, the buyer, the restaurant is in. So what happens next? How do you get the artists? It's kind of like Tinder match, right? Like you have to find <laughs> the other end, right? So that, that's kind of interesting. All right. So I took that same flyer the and I walked, I took that exact same flyer and my exact same bike and I'm riding through my neighborhood and most of the art galleries are closed, but there's one open down on Warren Street called One Art Space. And I walked in and I showed Diego, the curator there, I just showed him the same flyer. and He just nods again. He goes, I can get you artists. <laughs> Great. I ha we represent a lot of emerging artists who would be happy, you know, to help because they're young, they're hungry, the pandemic shut down most of the, the galleries. Yeah. And so all these artists had months and months and months of not being able to show. Mm. But the beauty is, and from all the artists that I spoke with, they had a lot of time to create. Right. They were very prolific. They told me that they were easily four to five times more prolific during this period of being shut in and more things to express, more things to talk about. And so, and, and by the way, so, so this is a form of exposure for them. Yeah. And that maybe that led to, oh my God, the QR code that is part of this thing. Yeah. So one of the things I felt like we needed to do was thank the artists for their charity, their time, their giving by trying to promote them. By, by, mm. uh, so it, I built a website and it's called curbsidecanvas.com. And, you know, I put all my design and writing and user interface and all of that went in. And I said, how am I going to promote the artists? How am I going to promote the restaurants? I built a very robust website that shows each project has their own page. It has all the artists information and links. There's video we, we I've created thousands and thousands of hours of content at this point in time and photographs of the beginning of the project from when it was raw to the transformation. So it's a lot of transformation. But each artist that worked with us, you know, originally, they have friends who are artists who then started, you know, knocking on my door and yeah. pinging me and saying, we'd love to work on this. We'd love to work on this. And it's funny because at the very beginning, some of the naysayers said, you'll never get artists to, to work for free. You'll never get anybody to do this. 
And at this point in time, or at, at the beginning, we had 20 artists in that short two month span hmm. were, uh, create 13 murals for 13 restaurants in the course of six weeks. Wow. That's a lot. And then since then, we've got an army of over 100 artists and wow. 40 of them wow. have, have worked on 40 plus murals for 40 plus restaurants in 10 different neighborhoods across the yes. city. And I'm just amazed by how much they're willing to give. And part of it, Rob, you're, you're right. Like this is a different kind of exposure. This is working on 30 to 80 foot boards mm. and it's loud. And if they get how to scream in the midst of concrete and asphalt, that's really gray and drab, it does a lot for them. And especially it does a lot for the restaurants. I keep trying to tell the restaurants, you will stand out <laughs> in the sea of sameness, the sea of just raw wood or one color. And somebody who's walking by is going to say, wow, like that place has got something going on there. Right. I, and I if think they got something going on on the outside, they got something going on on the inside. Yeah. And that, that's what's so interesting because it, it, it must have been sort of a full circle moment because you talked a little bit about at the beginning, you didn't really know what your end goal was, but it, you kind of did. You knew that you wanted to do something to help right? You knew you wanted to help restaurants and you knew you wanted to help artists. You just didn't know what the KPIs were or whatever, you know? <laughs> right. and I think, and, and, and so to sort of see it evolve to not only are you giving the artists exposure, but I imagine that the restaurants are getting increased business to say of people being like, you know what, of all the places on this block or all the places that I could go, let me go to this place that actually looks kind of cool from the outside. And that kind of leads to something that I also found interesting, which was one of your, maybe what you thought might be a longer term goal was your curbside canvas crawl of actually doing a, a bit of a, a, an art tour, if you will, of all of the sort of locations. So tell us a little bit about how that's been manifesting over, over time. That's really great. That's a, a great segue because that's my kind of my goal, you know, as we roll out into each neighborhood. It's not that it's, you know, there's a lot of neighborhoods that we're in that we have only one or two restaurants in, but I keep trying to tell those neighborhoods and trying to get organizers in those neighborhoods that it becomes a thing when there's yeah. a group within a footprint especially for neighbors, people who live there will walk by and they'll smile. They'll go like one block over as they're walking their dog and they'll say, oh, there's another one. And there's another one. Oh, there's another one. I don't know if you remember the, the, the painted cows back like in the, the early 2000s. It's kind of like that. So once I got a footprint of about 13 restaurants in Tribeca, all within walking distance, I went back to the art gallery and I said, hey, would you guys be interested in working with me on an art crawl where we start at your gallery, where, where you gave us most of you know, the, the first arts? You have a show there and then you know, we'll, we'll put it on Eventbrite. People can come and then they can come in into your gallery because the gallery had just opened up. You, they can see exposed to your neighborhood art gallery. And then I will take them for a walk through all 13 murals. And that would give the restaurants, like we had, we had tie-ins. Restaurants could give anyone at the art gallery, 
we had a poster and they could, you know, if, if a, a patron were to take a picture of a QR code, they could take it to the restaurant for a free drink because nice. they would be, my whole goal was to connect everybody. Yeah. The art galleries kept on telling me, we want to be more part of the neighborhood and be connected to the restaurants because we've got patrons coming in for a, a gallery show and then they ask us, where should we go eat? Yeah. Right. So like they want to be part of the community. The restaurants want to be part of the community. Artists want to be part of the community. So I keep saying it's a neighbor helping neighbor. Like that's how we're going to get through this is everyone working together just to build the neighborhoods back. Yeah. You know, by the way, this, this um, street art gallery, you know, phenomenon. I was in um, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and they've got an area called uh, Beco uh, do Batman. And it's incredible. Just in this neighborhood, all of a sudden, what erupted was this amazing graffiti art gallery on the street. And I think that's what's happening here. So I think, you know, there's something just very powerful about this collision of the world of art and the street that something happens. Yeah. You know, when we were kids, Bill, this is this reminds me of, of Keith Haring. You know, he was yeah. he was such a phenomenon you know, because he was putting art in the subway. Yeah, I think it, it also kind of takes some of the elitism out of it in, in a capacity as well, because it makes it accessible. You know, it, it takes it out of the gallery, just because it's not in a gallery, that doesn't mean that it's a lesser form of art, you know? And and I think something that that's also interesting that, that before we sort of move on to your journey is just kind of hearing from you, Bill. I mean, obviously your passion shows in droves. Like not only were you out here, you know, knocking on doors literally, you know, but you're building websites and probably flexing muscles and skills that you might not have even known you had, right? And, and so, you know, thinking about the importance of art, especially in a time that is a bit of a dark time, to be honest, you know. Talk to us a little bit about kind of what do you think it is about art? What makes you so passionate? Why do you think that folks were just and still are really just sort of gravitating towards this, even as we start to open back up? I think part of it goes back to what we were saying about a flower growing in the crack of a sidewalk. Yeah. Right? Like there's something about something natural and organic coming out of something man like manufactured and controlled yeah i think that that's what happens like when even a dandelion even what we call a weed when you see that in the sidewalk you think wow it's like it found a way <laughs> it found a way and it, it again it's like a that taking matters in your own hands right like like you were saying it's like there's something about when you see it out in the world, it's democratizing. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like you don't have to, it, no one has to pay a fee to go see that. And I think that's what the beauty of, of street art is that you just come across it. Mm. You don't necessarily go looking for it, but it, it sort of finds you. Like if it's within an eye shot, it will jump into your field of vision. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what, what's really beautiful is that it's unavoidable when it's nearby. If, if it's like, again, within eye shot, within your field of vision, your eye will go to it and it will pull you towards it. And by the way, this is happening now. You know, you helped us with uh, the Now York project on 38th Street. So on 38th and 8th, which is when you go into that neighborhood, it is city, city, city. It is the most like 
dense city feeling area, zero humanity, like no charm. But then that mural that we've done just erupts and suddenly there's humanity in a neighborhood that's not a very human neighborhood. Yeah, that, that's, so what, what, what Rob's talking about is not a restaurant, but just a, a, a vinyl that Rob and, and now York tried to make happen. So, or, or made happen, I should say, try. So one of the things as we were talking early on is that Midtown has suffered arguably the worst of this COVID in terms of business, in terms of real estate, everything. And we were talking about how do we say that art is happening now? And, and I kept on saying, well, like, can we also say that Midtown is happening now because art is happening mm. now there? And, yeah. and one of our artists that did a restaurant on Restaurant Row at Tito Murphy's, his name is Claire, his art name is, his art handle is Clarity in Mind and Heart. Uh, he's an emerging artist that I got through one art space. And I thought, why don't we get a Midtown Hell's Kitchen artist to express why he believes art is happening now and why his neighborhood of Midtown is happening now. And with now York, you know, we just put that all together to express exactly what Rob's saying, that, you know, even in the most city, not necessarily the most pleasant part of the city either, like that's, that's you know, that's a rough part now, can have life, can, like, you walk around that corner and you can't avoid it. Like you, it will pull you right there. It's this sort of push versus pull. It's like, if it's near you, it's going to pull you towards it and you don't have to go inside. And like you said, some elite situation. It's democratic. Like street art is just, and the other thing that's beautiful about street art is that it's, it's in the moment. All these artists know that it's transient. Like tomorrow, it could be gone, that hmm. someone could paint over it, that another a graffiti artist could tag over it, which is unfortunate. The city could take it down. My whole belief was that the city was going to take all this down in two months. And yet still the artist said, I still want to do it. I still want to be up there because for them, the art is not necessarily at lasting, but for them, it's the moment of making it. Yeah. And you know? Know, it's kind of plays in nicely with now York, right? The art is about now, right? Um, and, and for our listeners that are interested in seeing this uh, the amazing piece, you can uh, search hashtag now York uh, on Instagram, Twitter, or follow now York stories on Instagram. So Bill, want to sort of do a, a pivot a little bit and, and, and enlighten our, our listeners a little bit to your journey and sort of how you became the person you are today. And starting with how you got into advertising. Obviously, that's our jam over here. And uh, you know, we know that you're one of us, <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got into uh, advertising. It's, it's a, a fun ride, a fun <laughs> ride. So, so I grew up in Baltimore, Greek immigrant parents, a, a family of restaurateurs and, and visual artists. I knew I didn't want to be an artist artist. And I knew at that point in time, I loved to cook. I cooked in the restaurant for 13 years and worked in the family business, but I had something else that I needed to do. And and it was itching at me. And I was very artistic as a kid, but 
what I really loved was Mad Magazines and Wacky yeah, Packs. And the, I love that. And the folding part in the back? The folding part. But it really was the satire. It was the satirical ads, the fake ads. And even more so was Wacky Packs. The Wacky Packs really, I just, I started trying to make my own and just like all these things. And so I knew that I really was not just you know, an art picture guy. Like I loved when pictures and words came together and crashed and, and said something that we weren't expecting. So I enrolled at the design and visual arts program at University of Delaware. A number of us ad folk are, you know, are from there and we have a pretty good network. Moved to New York, started working my first job at McCaffrey McCall hmm. way back when. From there, uh, I went to NWR, and that's where I met Rob through a mutual friend of ours. And, you know, I met wonderful people there. I mean, it was a big, you know, madman, old school kind of agency, but I met a lot of people that stayed friends. I met my wife there and uh, lots of people that uh, I have long relationships with. But where I really cut my teeth and really learned my craft and crafts that I didn't know I had to learn was at Deutsch in the, yeah. uh, in the mid nineties. So uh, I was there for seven years. They started, there were like 70 people. And when I left, there were 700 people wow. and two offices. My boss was a guy named Greg Denoto, who you probably all know, but became a, a great mentor and then friend and partner, as he left to form his own agencies, I became a staple pretty much with him. But what I really learned more than anything there was, even as a creative, you've got to know strategy. You've got to know how to be a good account person. You've got to be able to answer all questions. And you've got to be able to think beyond your own just creative head. Yeah. Um, and In I, other I, words, you got to make the flyer, build the website, do the work, <laughs> <laughs> knock the door. Yeah, you got to make the type bigger. Right? <laughs> and make the right. logo bigger, too. <laughs> and, and Bill, so, how, how much of that? I mean, you got, you got to work with, uh, you know, one of our industry icons. You, know, you got to work with uh, Donnie Deutsch. His name was on the door. I mean, was there anything like particular, you know, from Donnie that you would say really influenced your career? Yeah, the, the thing more than anything that I appreciate and respect about Donnie is when he's doing his work, he is not thinking about anything but the consumer head and, and the client head, but really what the target audience. And so that's what I really learned. Like, look, back then, like, Deutsch was a really creative hotshot. People were doing like, you know, even though we never, we never entered any awards, Deutsch never entered award shows at all, but we did amazing creative award winning level work and groundbreaking work. And, but what I learned from Donnie was think more like a consumer and less like an ad award seeking creative, think more like the client than an award-seeking creative. And if you do those things, the deserved accolades will come. Mm. Whether that means new business, more business, more profile, all those things, the, the right things that are supposed yeah. to happen. Right. 
award shows are ultimately great and awards are great because they, they celebrate the hard work that we do. But when it's just about award shows, you know, and you lose clients just because you just want to do something fun in your sandbox, like it doesn't help business, doesn't help your clients at all. And so it's a little self-serving. So all of this, like this whole experience has been about not being self-serving. If, if you are selfless in your, in your uh, intention, selfless in your full engagement, selfless in your expectations, things will eventually unfold in a positive way. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that I know about you is uh, not only are you uh, this impresario of this great art project, great, you know, creative director, art director, but you are also a pretty amazing harmonica player. Ooh. So, so before you give some advice, maybe talk a little bit about how you got into being in a blues band. Great question. I love that question because I love talking about music. All right. So, Rob and I have a mutual friend. His name is John Pierce. And when I was, you know, I don't know, not early in life, but, you know, well into our career, uh, he gave me a harmonica. He was tooling around with a harmonica. Was it a Honer Marine Band? I think that was what he It liked. was a blues master. Oh, uh, okay. Warner blues master. And then I had my first child. And I said, I have got to do something for me during this period that's just mine. Right. And so I, you know, I pulled that harmonica. I always love the sound of the harmonica. It, it somehow, I mean, if you talk to musicians, they'll tell you how they found the instrument that became the instrument that they use, or even, could even just be vocals. And it's whatever filters through a song to your, oh, hey, hey. Rob's Bring showing us uh, his harmonica. I hear you in Rob. And, and just, Bill's just pulling a, his just out. Just a little Fender Blues Deluxe. You know. <laughs> what key are you in? I think it's a C or G. And uh, a G. Wow. Wow. Just for our listeners, uh, Bill is showing us his harmonica case kit and caboodle, oh which God. is exponentially more amazing than Rob's. <laughs> yeah, I, and, I, and I can all... That's Bill. We're, what, what key are you in, Rob? We could jam a little bit. I'm in G, but I can only play the opening to uh, Bruce Springsteen's Promised Land. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, please go. No, so I decided I was going to take some classes. I took about four years of, of harmonica and blues music and ensemble classes at the new school. Wow. When I was young, I had respiratory challenges. I always had bronchitis, and my teacher, who was an amazing teacher. He was, his name is Bob Shatkin. He's no longer with us. He was a blues master, played with Muddy Waters in Chicago. Wow. He said, you're never going to play. You're never, you're never going to be our player. And so again, it's taking matters in my own hands. I said, blank that. I took my harp and I walked to work blowing and drawing, blowing and drawing, blowing and drawing to build up my lungs. And then I just kept just doing that, doing that, doing that for months and months and months and months and listening and listening and playing. You know, about a year later, formed a blues band, Blue Rooster Pie. About a year later, the lead singer left and I had toyed around with singing a little bit, but never really. I took another two years of vocal lessons. Wow. And uh, 
you know, and, and look, most people start their musical journeys when they're in their teens, right? When they're like 14. <laughs> Here I'm like close to 30. I'm like tw- in my late 20s. And this just proves that you're never too old to learn anything at all. Like you can learn. You may not be good, but you can learn and you can improve incrementally where you were if, if you have the bandwidth, if you care, if you apply yourself and just keep at it. Yeah. And by the way, so so get like what's one of your favorite blues songs? My favorite blues song is uh, from a band called the Red Devils out of LA. They're sort of a grunge blues band that was around in the late 90s. The singer was uh, my hero named Lester Butler. And one of their songs is is called Automatic. And uh <laughs> That's the opening riff of that. But okay. it's okay. Uh, to our but, listeners, you didn't yeah. even have to pay for that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. You know, that so, was so, great. Yeah. So it just, uh, the, the instrument and singing uh, gives me flow. I mean, we've all heard of flow in sports and other, but I don't think I mentally literally shut off when I'm playing. I, someone's asked me to teach. I'm like, I don't know if I can teach because I'm, I'm not thinking. Like I, I stopped that part of my brain. It's become such a, an ingrained part of me. The other thing that it's done for me is, is you know, uh, like probably a lot of ad people early on, like I had a little bit of like apprehension presenting in front of big groups of people mm. and, you know, playing music in front of people where I'm completely exposed, you know, sometimes hundreds and hundreds of people really gave me like, uh, like I can do anything. Like I don't have to be hesitant. I don't have to be afraid. All I have to do is find that moment to step in and then get into the flow. And then it all just sort of happens. So um, you should bring the harp into the presentation, you know, like, I'm just like, <laughs> like you know, they call it stormy Monday, but Tuesday is just as bad. But I'm going to make you day today, and you're not going to be sad. Oh, there you go. Oh, you're a smith. <laughs> so thank you so much, Bill. So we are going to end on a piece of advice. And it's not going to be how to start your own band, because I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think you just laid out the blueprint. Step one, take some classes first. How about, how about that? Uh, <laughs> but I think one of the things that myself and I'm sure our listeners would love to learn from you and, and get a piece of advice is, what advice would you give to someone who wants to start a philanthropic side hustle? It's interesting because I wasn't looking to do that. (laughs) It just happened. And maybe that's the lesson Mm. is that it was a perfect storm. This this whole thing, like I said, I didn't set out to do anything, but I had in my DNA a number of things. I had the way I look at the world through small mom and pop restaurant business owner Mm. through visual artists, because I can see that when things pop in an, an environment, they will get attention. It had to do with my marketing background experience with my innate abilities to just m- build something that can work, like make, make things 
not just think through things, but actually, okay, how was the first step to making it? Mm. So I don't know. Like I don't like I don't know if I would have landed on anything if I hadn't ridden my bike that day, or if like things just didn't, you know, happen. I think that you probably, if I were to give direction, is try to always have in your head the things that give you passion and what your skill set is. Like what can you offer? What can you add? Maybe that's it. What can you offer selflessly? What can you add to make things better? And, you know, it's, it's, I always go back to him. And this is from a friend of mine's brother's book, uh, On Your Terms. He keeps saying, have a clear intention. And if the clear intention is simply, I just want to give during this period, give full engagement, whatever that is, full engagement, and have no expectations. Put yourself in a path and start moving forward. It doesn't, it should not be in fifth gear. It should not be in first gear, third gear, where you're just moving forward fast enough to make progress, but not so fast that you don't see the things that you might miss along the way that can help guide you or redirect your path. That um, is, I think that is th- those quite- are the things I would, I would offer to someone who is, wants to give and are unsure how to begin is, is those things. That, that is quite profound, Bill. I mean, you, you started by saying you don't know, but I think you do know. <laughs> you know? I think, you know, when we think about it, you know, for our listeners, if, if you guys are, are thinking about potentially starting a philanthropic side hustle on your own, let it happen upon you, just like a rose in the concrete or like some art in New York City, right? And, and just know what your passions are and, and, follow, and follow them. And you can well, always come and help me. Or just call Bill. <laughs> I, 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 I need volunteers to help with so many different parts of this because, you know, it's it just me and a handful of others. <laughs> I think that's important. Curbside Canvas Project. I think this is really important work and it's really beautiful work. So please check it out and please help Bill. And Bill, I've known you a long time, so I'm, I could do this all day and we could even do it without microphones and it's still fun. So <laughs> but thank you. And, and, and I, you know, thank you for what you're doing for the city. I think more than anything, you're really making a difference and not everyone gets a chance to make a difference and, and you're really doing it. So thank you. And I'm sure these restaurateurs and your fellow New Yorkers, you know, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And, and thank you both for making this a, a nice, fun, fun hour of uh, of my day and uh, for, for appreciating what we do and, and I really appreciate what what you're all doing and especially with now York it's, it's a it's a definite natural partnership between what we're doing so. all right awesome thank you thank you for listening to the disruptor series podcast Adweek's agency podcast of the year craving more disruption visit us at tbwashyday.ny.com